good morning, everyone. <laughs> you know, I just want to tell you up front, as we, by the way, you may want to go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, whether you have a Bible on your phone or a printed version or use the Bible in the pews, which we have in front of you. But I just want to tell you up front that the last time I was up here was when we were doing our series in Ephesians chapter 1, and Pastor Daniel gave me three verses. That took me 40 minutes. Luke chapter 1, 80 verses. No, don't worry. One thing about being a former school teacher, I know time. And uh, I'll get you out of here on time. Lord willing, I promise, okay? All right, let's review a little bit before we go to Luke chapter 1, which, by the way, we're calling this message Preparing for Emmanuel. Preparing for Emmanuel. And we're not going through all of Luke chapter 1. We actually only have time to cover a portion of it. But let me review just a little bit. Two weeks ago, when we started our Advent series, Pastor Daniel took us through and reminded us that Jesus was and is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who offered himself to save us from sin and spiritual death. And what the Lord did for us on the cross was, of course, foreshadowed by Passover, uh, the wonderful Jewish feast that Israel celebrated according to the Lord's command, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt, the deliverance from bondage of slavery. Likewise, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Last week, Pastor Jonathan took us through Isaiah chapter 53, which is a beautiful passage of Scripture that, written 700 years before Jesus came, clearly demonstrates the Lord's suffering his crucifixion, and his resurrection were all foretold. The purpose of his advent, as we're reminded in Isaiah 53, is our Savior saves us from sin and offers us spiritual life. Well, now we kick it into high gear because the Lord's plan of redemption now shifts. Emmanuel, which is not only a name for Jesus, it's also a title because the word literally means God with us. It's the name the Lord was given, Isaiah chapter 714, that predicted his arrival 700 years before it happened. It's the name that he's also given in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Emmanuel is coming, and he is coming fast when we get to Luke chapter 1. 400 years it's been 400 years by the time we get to the New Testament that God has been silent to his people. The Old Testament closed sometime around 400 B.C., and then for 400 years, God was not speaking directly to his people. And then everything changes. Because we're told in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the time had come to completion, or in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's timing was perfect. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Now, as we go to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be focusing our attention on three people. Three people who are all affected by Jesus' advent, by his soon coming arrival. The first person we're going to learn about is Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest who made a mistake. He doubted God's promise. The next one is going to be Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, a mature woman with a thankful and joyful heart. And the last one is going to be Mary. Mary, a young teenager with a submissive yet bold faith. All right? Now, before we do that, before we learn about those three people, let's first of all take a quick look at Luke's prologue. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Go ahead and read with me, please. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. All right. This is one sentence in the Greek language. It is considered one of the most polished pieces of Greek writing in all of the New Testament. It actually reads like something that would have come, say, from Aristotle or Plato or someone like that. Luke is explaining to us why and how he wrote not just this gospel, but also the second book he wrote, which was the book of Acts. Now, why another gospel? Because there were already circulating, at least by this time, probably the gospel of Mark. Luke's writing, and he says, I'm writing to you Theophilus. And Theophilus was probably a wealthy man, either a young Christian or somebody who was seriously considering becoming a Christian. He was probably Luke's patron, probably the publisher of this gospel, seeing that it got copied. But he says, I'm writing to you and everyone else so that you might have certainty. In the Greek language, certainty in our Bibles appears in the last place in these, in these four verses, meaning that that's the emphasis. It's a legal term in Luke's time. It meant security, stability. And what Luke is telling us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had carefully researched it for at least two years by this time, and I'll explain why that was in just a moment. But it, based, it is based upon historical fact. Jesus' life and resurrection is one of the surest facts in all of the ancient world. That's what Luke is telling us here. And then Luke says, because Luke was actually not someone who personally met Jesus, unlike the Apostle Paul, unlike the Apostle Peter and the other apostles that dated from Jesus' ministry. Luke says, I'm depending upon, if you notice, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And by the way, one of the eyewitnesses that Luke undoubtedly talked to was Mary. Because Mary was still around when Luke wrote this gospel. 
and he had plenty of time to talk to her while his friend, the Apostle Paul, was in prison in the Roman capital of Caesarea. All right, that's the prologue. Let's take a look now at Zechariah, a priest who doubted God's promise. So read with me, beginning at verse 5. And we're going to kind of pause as we go through this, uh, because it is a long passage of Scripture, and I don't want us to miss anything of what we need to catch. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Suddenly, we're taking a step back, back into Old Testament times, because this reads, if you notice, like the Old Testament, all right? Zechariah and Elizabeth have a fine testimony. They're righteous, they're blameless, which doesn't mean, by the way, they were sinless. Rather, they had faithfully served the Lord for years. It was a great blessing to be a priest, but Zechariah was actually doubly blessed because his wife also came from a priestly family. But they're childless. And that's no big deal in our time, but guys, that was huge in Bible times. It was considered a social stigma, especially upon the wife, the woman, if they had no children. So people would wonder, well, if Zachariah and Elizabeth are so godly and so blessed, why don't they have any kids? And you can imagine year after year after year, as the people in their village, the people in their town are having children and raising children, and, you know, this friend has two, this friend has three, this friend has four. How many does Elizabeth have? Zero. They would start to ask, why? Why won't the Lord give us children? The Lord had a reason. The same reason as to why he prevented Abraham and Sarah from having children for many years. The same reason as to why a man was born blind. And Jesus himself tells us, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, Something bad happened to you. You had to have done something to deserve it. That was the thinking back then. Maybe this guy even sinned in the womb. They actually believed that. I don't know. Maybe he kicked his mother too much. I don't know. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. When the Lord does not act... The way we want, it means he has something better for us. And he had something much better for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole community of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. There may have been as many as 24,000 priests divided up into 24 divisions. Each division in Zechariah's time, besides serving at the major feasts like Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, they also served two weeks. One week here, another week maybe six months later. Within Zechariah's division alone, there were a thousand priests. And the fact that he was chosen to go into the temple itself to offer incense, which by the way, incense represents the prayers of the people ascending before God, that would be, guys, the high point of Zechariah's career. A lot of priests never, ever had the opportunity to do that. There was too many of them. So Zechariah goes in, the way this is supposed to go, he goes into the holy place, there's the little incense altar, about 40 inches high, 20 inches by 20 inches. He puts the incense on the altar. The smoke begins to rise. He then prays for the people. He then goes prostrate on the floor. He gets up and he leaves. That's how it's supposed to go. Surprise. He's doing what he's supposed to do, and he senses someone else in there. Standing next to the menorah, the lampstand, is an angel. Yeah, I'd be terrified too. Zachariah's immediate thought probably was, what did I do wrong? But it's actually good news. The angel happens to be Gabriel, as we're going to discover. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah. For your prayer has been heard. Now, you got to catch this. Zechariah would not have been praying for himself. What he would have been praying for, remember, the incense represents the prayers of all the people, the people who are praying outside. He's the priest. He's the intermediary. He's the mediator. He's praying on behalf of the nation of Israel that the nation would experience salvation and redemption. But at the same time, he and Elizabeth have been praying for years for a child. What he didn't know was that God was going to handle Zechariah and Elizabeth's request and the spiritual need for Israel both at the same time. Yeah. When the Lord does not act the way we want, it means that he has something better. You get it? Your prayer has been heard. I love this verse from Isaiah. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. The angel tells Zechariah some marvelous things about his son, his son being John the Baptist. He tells him 
He will be great before the Lord. And the Lord Jesus himself, John's cousin, said that among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. He will be consecrated and filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn people back to God, by the way, without mincing any words. Imagine if we had an altar call here at Resurrection Church and people came forward and we said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, that's, that's John the Baptist, okay? His ministry will be like Elijah. The last book in our English Bibles is the book of Malachi, written near the end of the Old Testament period. And Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.6, both those scriptures talk specifically that before the Lord comes back, he will send a messenger before him like Elijah. Elijah's role in the Old Testament was to turn Israel back to God, to prepare them. That's John the Baptist. All right, let's pick it up then at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old, an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. What's wrong with you? An angel is standing next to you. Nobody has seen Gabriel, as far as we know, in over 500 years since the time of Daniel. How shall I know this? Notice he says, I'm an old man. In the Greek language, you can flip around words for emphasis. The first thing that he was thinking about is, I'm old, this is not going to happen. And then what he's actually asking, guys, is this. He wants a sign. What more of a sign do you have to have than an angel standing next to you? The problem is this. Zechariah is more focused on his condition and Elizabeth's condition. Notice Luke says they were both advanced in years. They were probably in their 50s, maybe even in their 60s at this time. They're more focused on their condition, their circumstance, than on God's promise, which Gabriel has just told him. He lacked faith that God would come through. One of my favorite scriptures, I got the reference wrong on the slides, as well as I got the book wrong now that I'm looking at it. (laughs) Sorry. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? That's Jeremiah, Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27. Is anything too hard for the God? And I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Let's keep reading. Verse 19, and the angel answered, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to bring you the good news. And behold, by the way, Zechariah, you want a sign? You're going to be the sign. 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. That would be the last thing that Zechariah would hear for over nine months. His hearing immediately stopped, and evidently the word here that in our Bibles appears basically that he would not be able to speak meant he was also deaf. In other words, he is now limited. He cannot communicate. He's supposed to come out and pronounce what's called the Aaronic blessing, which is from Numbers chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. He comes out, and he's making signs, and they finally figure out something has happened to him. He's had a vision in the temple. Can you imagine? First of all, nothing's going to stop God's plan. John the Baptist is going to be coming, but Zechariah had a golden opportunity to be able to tell the people what Gabriel had told him, and instead he's Do not let your doubts rob you of the blessing God wants to give you. God can be fully trusted. Have faith in him. Hebrews 11.1, best definition of faith in scripture. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. I remember several years ago, my wife Linda and I were attending, part of the time, a church, uh, Laurel Glen Bible Church here in town, and Laurel Glen Bible Church happens to have another church that meets at their facility. It's the Bakersfield Deaf Church. Fine church. My wife was learning ASL at the time. Uh, my wife's sister, Laura, happens to be deaf, and so they, along with our daughter, Kathleen, would attend that church. The church's pastor is a fellow named Jeff Jackson, wonderful man of God. Jeff one time spoke, now hear me out on this, okay? Yeah, he's deaf, but he spoke at the main services for Laurel Glen. And the way that he was able to do it was that in the congregation of that church is a woman named Deanna Sampley. And Deanna teaches ASL, American Sign Language, up at Bakersfield College. So as Jeff was gesturing using American Sign Language, Deanna was interpreting, basically, she had the microphone and she was telling us what Jeff was communicating with his hands and with his gestures. But imagine if Deanna hadn't been there and Jeff had this message that God had placed upon his heart and he could not get it out. That's what happened to Zachariah. All right, let's keep reading. And when it, I'm picking it up at verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now we're going to come across another scripture in a bit about Elizabeth. But here at this point, uh, Elizabeth, she's a mature woman, with the thankful and joyful heart, as we see here in verses 24 to 25, and then later on, beginning at verse 39. Here's the question. 
She finally has conceived. God has given her and Zachariah, in spite of Zachariah being a doofus, has given them a child. But why does she seclude herself for five months? Very simple. She's waiting for the baby bump. Now, I have a bump like some of us, but I assure you it's not a baby bump. Remember, the taunts, the recriminations, the veiled things that she would hear, that Zachariah would hear, that she had put up with for years. And now, God is acting on her behalf, and she's waiting until she can go out and whoo. Maybe that time while she was waiting, just celebrating before the Lord for this miracle child, maybe one of the scriptures that came to mind was this one from Psalm 113, verses 4 to 9. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Advent should include quiet celebration. Yeah, I know, things are getting nuts as we're approaching Christmas Eve and Christmas, but we need to include times of quiet celebration, thanking the Lord for his wonderful care and provision, which leads to this question. What has the Lord done for you that you need to remember and celebrate? Yeah, it has been a hard year for so many of us, hasn't it? But the Lord brought us through, hasn't he? We need to celebrate that. All right, let's keep moving. Let's go now to Mary, a young teenager with a submissive yet bold faith. In the sixth month, this would have been the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, we're going to pause there for just a moment. Here's why. First of all, set aside. Please set aside and forget all those extra-biblical teachings, and rituals about Mary. The real Mary has gotten almost buried by all this stuff that has kind of accumulated around her over the centuries of church history. We need to focus on her, the real person. Here's how Mary is unique, everyone. She's the only person in history who was both Jesus' mother and his disciple. She was both. (coughs) Excuse me. Also, think about the contrast here of what we've already read. First of all, we started the story in the temple in Jerusalem, the grandiose temple that Herod the Great had spent who knows how much money on, covered in white limestone, covered in marble, having gold. It glistened in the, basically for miles. You could see it even before you got to Jerusalem from miles away. Now we're going to Nazareth. Nazareth, a bump on the road, 
a nondescript village of maybe 500 people. As one of Jesus' own disciples would say later, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then there's Zechariah versus Elizabeth. Zechariah, the mature, well-trained priest who knew the scriptures forward and backwards, which makes his unbelief even worse, versus Mary. Get this, Mary is only about 12 to 14 years old. That's when they got married. She's betrothed to Joseph, which is even more binding than an engagement is today. A period of betrothal lasted for one year, at the end of which they would consummate the marriage. She's a peasant girl. Her name, Mary, is so common, over half the girls around her were either named Mary or Salome. Easily forgotten, overlooked. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Verse 28. And he came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at his saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Favored one? Humble Mary didn't think so. She wasn't anything special except to God. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Five facts about Jesus that she is told. First of all, he will be great, but he did not appear so. According to Isaiah 53, 1, there wasn't anything special about how Jesus looked. He was despised and rejected. He is the son of the most high God. According to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, he is the exact representation of of God the Father in the flesh, yet he is distinct because God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But everything that is true about the Father and his nature is true about the Son of the Most High. He is David's greater descendant, the heir to David's throne. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and finally his kingdom, according to Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, will never ever end. And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be since I am a virgin? The question sounds a little like Zacharias, right? But it's different, guys. It's very different. Here's the difference. Mary was not questioning the Lord's ability. Rather, she was wondering how this miracle was going to happen. <clears throat> the miracle had been foretold in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin would indeed give birth to God and with us, Emmanuel. Her question is different from that of doubting Zechariah. As Walter Liefeld explained in, in his book, Mary simply inquired how God would work. Zechariah questioned the truth of the revelation. Look at it this way. 
There's a big difference between doubt and an honest question. Doubt grows from unbelief. An honest question seeks to clarify real faith. Now, how many of you have ever asked God a question and God gave you an answer either you didn't understand or simply he did not answer at the time? He may choose to do it that way. In Mary's case, Gabriel does give her an answer But the answer is incredible. Keep reading. And the angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and it is in the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. The power of the Most High would overshadow her. Guys, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34, 35, when they finished the tabernacle and they had it all set up, God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God, descended, it overshadowed that tabernacle. And the priest, Aaron, and his sons could not go inside because of God's glory. It's the same term used to describe what Mary will experience. As God's glory descends upon her through the Spirit, and miraculously, this virgin becomes pregnant. And then to help Mary in her faith, Gabriel tells her two things. First of all, Elizabeth, you remember Elizabeth, your cousin? She's pregnant. And even more important, nothing is impossible with God. Here's what Job said, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do we really believe what Gabriel and Job said? That nothing is impossible with God. Because if you take that to heart, that's part of the message of Advent. Don't limit God. Don't limit what he can do. Look at Mary's reaction. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. Now, it's so brief that it's easy to miss. But she obeys. She trusts. When she says servant of the Lord, literally it's the Greek word doulos, it means slave. She's God's slave. A slave doesn't have any will of their own. According to the ancient world, a slave was a living tool. What were the possible costs of her doing this? A shredded reputation? Repudiation by Joseph, her family, her community? And then later, after Jesus was born and they took him to the temple to dedicate him, 
Simeon took Jesus, pronounced some wonderful prophecies over him, and then turned to Mary and said, a sword will pierce your own soul. Mary was at the foot of the cross with the other women, with the John the disciple, watching her son die for her sins as well as for everyone else's sins. I like what the Life Application Bible says about this. She took the risk of faith. She didn't consult with anyone else. She didn't take the time to weigh the pros and cons. She only knew that God was asking her to serve him, and she willingly obeyed. In other words, no what-ifs. Faith means we leave the what-ifs in God's hands. All she had to do was decide to trust. I say all, it was a huge step. But she did trust. And she also went to see Elizabeth. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country town in Judah. About a 60-mile journey, three days. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it that this was granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now notice, not a word has come out of Mary's mouth. All right? Somebody's telling Elizabeth what's going on. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's the same word there used to describe how a sheep or a goat, a young sheep or a goat, bounces. I'm sorry, I'm getting this picture of Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. But John is just, woohoo! Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Three times. There's no jealousy in Elizabeth. None. She is thankful for what Mary has experienced. She's thankful for the part that she's experienced. She's humbled to be part of God's plan. No wonder Mary wanted to see Elizabeth. If there was anyone who could understand and sympathize with her, it was Elizabeth. Mary responds... Oh, before we get to Mary's response, her song, here's something else about about Advent from Elizabeth. Advent includes being gracious and encouraging to how the Lord is working in other people. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Then there's, finally, as we draw things up, There's Mary's song. We know it a lot of times as the Magnificat, which is simply translates the first word, magnify from the Latin language, the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. But it's Mary's song. And I'm sad to say that there is a lot of Bible scholars who should know better, who thinks that a young peasant girl could not possibly have composed this song. 
Mary had a very, very deep faith. And remember, she was traveling three days to get to Elizabeth, and I'm sure she was thinking about Scripture the whole way. So let's take a quick look at her song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is Mary's declaration of faith. It is saturated with the Old Testament, especially with something called the Song of Hannah. From 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Verses 46 to 49, the first part, that's where Mary is focusing upon what the Lord has done for her personally. The key phrase, the Lord has looked upon her humble estate. It was not got to catch this. It was not just Mary's faith that drew the Lord to her, that she got the privilege that every Jewish girl wanted to give birth to the Messiah. It wasn't just her faith. It was her humility. I like what St. Augustine wrote 1,500 years ago. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, Humility is the second. Humility is the third. God wants nothing to do with the proud or the arrogant. But according to places like Isaiah 57, 15, he is drawn to the humble, to the crushed, to the broken in spirit. Verses 50 to 55 Mary changes gears. She now talks about what the Lord has done for others, including her own nation of Israel. Two things here. First of all, over and over again, the Lord reverses things. He overthrows the prideful, the powerful. He lifts up the downtrodden. He lifts up the oppressed. It's what he did in Egypt when he delivered Israel from slavery, from the most mighty nation of the world, the superpower of the ancient world. And God rescued them and put down the Egyptians. It's what he constantly does. We don't always see that, guys, because quite frankly, we focus upon other things. But David, in Psalm 37, verses 35 and 36, David said this, I looked for the wicked man. I looked for the evil man. I could not find him. Because God had taken that person, God had taken that nation and literally ripped them up by the roots. This is what God does. And secondly, the verbs that Mary is using, 
Basically, what Mary is saying in these verses is God did this in the past, and because God's character does not change, this is how God operates in the future. He continues to fill the hungry with good things. He continues to send the rich away empty. He continues to bring down the mighty from their thrones and to lift up the others. And by the way, this is exactly the same thing that Mary's son, Jesus, would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Advent reminds us that in God's kingdom, things are not often, let me try this again. Advent reminds us that in God's kingdom, things are often not what we see or assume at first glance. All right, let's wrap this up. Go to our final applications. What can we learn for the examples of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary? From Zechariah, we learn this. Do not doubt God. Whatever he says, he will do. From Elizabeth, be thankful and joyful when God surprises and blesses you. And finally, from Mary, submit and trust when the Lord calls. Leave the details to him. All right, now, as Rachel plays Breath of God, we're going to have a time for people to come forward. If you want prayer, for whatever your need is, whether you need to come to the Lord, whether you need to just simply have some help, our pastors and our elders are gonna be here. You come as the Lord leads.